The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. Jesus went on his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. He sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The Gospel of the Lord. That was the correct gospel. I do beg your pardon. I have to say to a few of you already, I do beg your pardon for being a little bit testy right before the service this morning. Three people approached me to say we were out of bulletins. It's a nice problem to have, but as you can tell, I'm a little bit out of practice. Feels that way, doesn't it? A little bit. Just yesterday, after a memorial service, I was talking with some musicians. We were comparing notes a little bit. And uh, one of them has a friend who is a superb violinist, a violinist who can play anything at all. And she finds herself frequently in situations where she is asked to direct small ensembles. And she steps up confidently and begins to direct But as she confided in her friend, she always wonders what she is doing and why she was asked to do it. Ah, yes, said the other musician. It's a little bit of an imposter syndrome, isn't it? Oh, yes. Sounded very familiar. Like this morning to me. You know, there's a canon in the Episcopal Church, and it's called that the parish priest should be a non-anxious presence. (laughs) 
Imposter syndrome for 500, please. Today's reading from Mark takes us very much into that question of who am I and what am I called to do, really? Or as a mentor of mine, a very fine priest said upon his retirement, now I get to find out what I'm going to be when I grow up. Mark, unlike some of the other gospel writers, actually raises this question not just for us, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? But for Jesus himself, it seems to be an operative question. Mark is the author who begins the gospel at the River Jordan. Jesus shows up and is baptized by John, and the heavens open to Jesus, and the Spirit comes down and touches him, and then drives him out into the wilderness for 40 days, with a big sort of cloud over his head with a question mark in it. Who am I, really? Why am I being called to this? We're the ones who have the inheritance of the other gospel traditions, and we put all the pieces together and proclaim him Son of God. Jesus picks up a strange apocalyptic phrase, Son of Man, which harkens back to a text that was very well known in Judaism in the first century, the book of Daniel. And in that, Daniel has a vision of a young man, one like a human being is the literal translation of son of man, coming on a cloud in great glory next to the divine being. For the imagination of many in first century Judaism, that was a hint or a glimpse of the coming of the Messiah. But then there are a whole host of other things that are meant to come with that, like being a warrior like David was and riding into Jerusalem perhaps on a horse, but at least with a big army behind your back to throw out the Romans and restore the ancient Davidic dynasty to its glory. Maybe cleanse the temple on the side. That would probably be a good thing too. And restore everything to whatever your historic imagination would like. Instead, Jesus finds himself on the outside looking in. The authorities in Jerusalem really want nothing to do with him, and the people who recognize him are the Gentiles, like the Syrophoenician woman last week. The disciples who are with him just simply do not get it. They don't understand what's going on. They've been asking verse after verse, chapter after chapter so far in this gospel, who is this? Even though Jesus has walked on the water and calmed the storm, has healed many. Interestingly enough, the people who are healed seem to recognize him for who he is And so do the demons that he drives out, but not the disciples. Until Peter gets it for a New York minute this morning. Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? After this litany of all the expected ways the Messiah is supposed to return, maybe it will be Elijah coming back. 
Maybe it will be John the Baptist returning. John the Baptist has been killed by King Herod. Maybe it will be one of the minor prophets reemerging and proclaiming good things to the people of Israel who were wanting to hear good news. Peter says, you are the Messiah. And then Jesus does a very enigmatic thing. Well, don't tell anyone, for heaven's sake. That's trouble right there. But then we discover that Peter barely had the truth for a New York minute because when Jesus starts to say what's in store for him, it's as clear as the handwriting on the wall, Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. Why? Well, Peter wants that warrior king, that warrior Messiah, to go into Jerusalem, kick out the Romans, restore the ancient Davidic dynasty, and hint, hint, maybe Peter will have a nice seat next to him, you know, and a little bit of gold and good food to eat. I don't think Peter is just thinking about the glory of David in this moment. And Jesus rebukes him not just telling him he's wrong, but he accuses him of being Satan. That is to say, you are tempting me to something that I am not called to. That's what he means. And then he offers us this teaching which echoes across the centuries and is always the hardest thing for us as Christians to hear. In order to save your life, you must give it up. You must lose your life for the sake of the gospel in order to gain true life. It's not exactly a message that would sell well on television, would it? In fact, if you look around, the world of today is similar in at least one way to the world of the first century, and that is everyone is talking about who's in power, who has the wealth, who has the means, who's in charge. Here's Jesus healing those who are about as far from in charge as you can possibly imagine. Mark presents us with this primary riddle or paradox of our faith. That is, in order to gain life, we must lose it. We must give it up. If I say that too loudly and too many times about our life as a parish, I get in trouble with the vestry, right? What would happen if I said to the vestry, we're going to have to give up everything, (laughs) everything, if we're going to follow Jesus? Well, I might last for a little while, because I know how faithful our current vestry members are, but it would make everybody profoundly uncomfortable, would it not? But if you think about it for very long, on this weekend when we celebrate our 129th anniversary as a parish, how many narrow spots this parish has walked through over the years. Some of you remember them. Like the time when they couldn't afford a full-time priest during the Great Depression. Like the time when some of you remember there were maybe two people under the age of 18 in the whole of the congregation on a Sunday morning. 
the time you remember when we had budget deficit after budget deficit year over year over year over year. Somehow we're still here. Because the deep truth is that this parish, just like us as individuals, is constantly in the process of dying and rebirth. That is the gospel. That we must let go in order to be reborn, as Jesus says elsewhere in the gospels. Mark has the disciples not getting it yet because the resurrection hasn't come along. And even when it does at the end of Mark's gospel, you know what? Mark doesn't explain it, and people still don't get it. The early ending of Mark's gospel has the women fleeing the tomb in terror because the tomb is empty. Not what they were expecting. Mark is telegraphing to us that to die to the powers of this world, at least according to the gospel, is actually the first step in subverting them. Because when we rise again, those powers have no dominion over us anymore. Even the power of death no longer has dominion. And to understand that more clearly, just ask any tyrant how then their power would work with that in mind. Without the threat of death, it's over for them. It's over for the powers of this world. Instead, they have been subverted by the divine power of new life. And as Jesus says, in essence, don't trade your birthright for a bowl of pottage. What does it gain you to gain all the power in this world and forfeit the life that God has given you? The truth is, life itself is a gift. We really don't have any power over it except to acknowledge it and offer thanks and then offer it back up to the God who has given it. I don't know about you, but for me, that's good news. It means we have an opportunity to be free. But if you are also like me, you suffer from a little bit of imposter syndrome. Do I really belong here? Am I really being a Christian yet? Are we really being a Christian community yet? It's like that question that Jesus keeps asking when he knocks on the door of our heart of hearts day by day, moment by moment, and asks us, but who do you say that I am?